I just think that this administration is uniquely different. I think they are uniquely disorganized. I think they have uh, declared war on uh, on the bureaucracy, not just uh, the the intelligence community. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in New York today, joined by Jacob Weisberg, chairman and editor-in-chief of the Slate Group. His most recent book is Ronald Reagan, a biography. And joining us from Washington is FP columnist Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and the author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. And Colin Call, who is heading up FP's shadow government blog with Julie Smith and Derek Chalet. He is currently a professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in the Security Studies program and was previously the deputy assistant to President Barack Obama and national security advisor to Vice President Joe Biden. And finally, David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Listen up, ER nerds. Now that we're on twice a week, we expect you to keep up and keep submitting your ideas and suggestions. We'll be unveiling some new mugs very soon. I know that's <laughs> incredibly exciting for everybody. You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, from not one but two tiny podcast studios, one high above Washington's DuPont Circle and another somewhere in hip Brooklyn, we had the following conversation. So, guys, you know, it's really tough doing this podcast. Now we're doing it twice a week. Sometimes we do it a day or two in advance. And in the intervening 48 hours, more stuff happens that we hadn't expected or couldn't have anticipated. And it sort of changes the narrative. But I want to I drill down to an area that I think is going to be a little evergreen. And that's the battle between the Trump administration and what people refer to as the deep state. You know, when you were when you were in the Obama administration, Colin, you referred to that as the blob. But I think the blob is the deep state. The deep state is only just wearing a blue suit. You know, it's but they're very, very similar. And that is the insiders in the government. Sanger, these are the people you hang out with and you try to get to spill state secrets. Do you really buy into this notion that there is some sort of permanent establishment in Washington that is ultimately going to take down the Trump administration? Well, first thing I'd say, David, is you, until now, when we have used the phrase deep state, we have usually used it in reference to Pakistan, sometimes to Turkey. I'm trying to think where else? Where else would we? Maybe Saudi Arabia? But I've only in the past two or three weeks have I ever heard it even used in terms of referring to the United States. And I think it's a reference, of course, to the permanent bureaucracy and the permanent intelligence world. And it's always existed. And there's always been some struggle between the political class and a group of career officials who believe that they've been at this for a long time. They understand the issues more deeply. They understand the nuance and once again, they must go train a new administration. The difference this time is that you have a new administration that first has decided it doesn't want to be trained in some of this. Second, has decided they came in to shake up 
that permanent bureaucracy. And third, has at least at the highest level, the president's level, decided to go to war at least rhetorically with not only the media but everybody who he believes is leaking against him. And so far he has said in his in his tweets that that's the FBI, the NSA and all those people who took out General Michael Flynn as former national security advisor while in the next breath saying, no, I fired General Flynn because he had not told the truth to the vice president. So I think it's the president himself who has sort of put himself in opposition to this permanent bureaucracy rather than trying to make use of it. So, Jacob, you've written a book about Ronald Reagan. Back in the days of Ronald Reagan, those good old days, did this sort of thing exist? Was this something Reagan thought about? Well, it's it's funny, David. I mean, first of all, the you know the phrase "the deep state." I mean, when I hear that, I usually think I'm a, I'm about to be treated to a lecture on Noam Chomsky. You know, it's a phrase that I associate more with this slightly paranoid left wing idea of the secret mass, as opposed to the paranoid right wing, as opposed to the paranoid right wing. Um, but you know, Reagan. I mean, you know, there are a lot of parallels between Reagan coming to power and Trump coming to power, and they both did have a radical idea that swaths of the federal government could be abolished. You know, Reagan wanted to abolish the Department of Education uh, and the Department of Energy, some largely the, the same bureaucracies. I think Reagan yielded much more quickly to, to the reality and the understanding that the government was a big enterprise and had a lot of responsibilities and obligations and that it wasn't entirely practical to think about sweeping away huge tracts of it. Um, that, that was more a rhetorical stand and a way of changing the vector that had been producing expansion of government and turning it into a vector vector that, well, in, in the event, he didn't really shrink the government, but he, he reduced its rate of growth in a substantial way. Trump doesn't seem to have either himself or to be getting from the people around him the, the reality check that I think Reagan did get about what's possible and practical and the extent to which you can sort of start over and create from de novo a a, a federal government bureaucracy. You know, the way he talks about it, even the the use of the term bureaucracy is such a a kind of hostile and unrealistic framing about what people do in so many different functions, millions of people. You know, the, the president gets to a point closer to a thousand people in the days since the Pendleton Act. Everyone else stays. You know, they're professionals. They're not supposed to be political, but they are part of the institutional underpinnings of our, our governmental structure, and they do react when pushed in certain ways. So, Colin, one of the, when I hear people refer to the bureaucracy as a monolith, I think they've never had anything to do with the government. <laughs> And, you know, same with something like the deep state or the intelligence community. These are factionalized, you know, swaths of people, many different views within them. I can't really think of anything, however, that is quite likely to be as unifying with, you know, say the intelligence community as a president who runs a campaign, putting them in quotation marks and then comes into office and decides he wants to start a war with them and maybe eliminate a chunk of them, and that perhaps, and now he seems to be bent on also discrediting them. Don't you think that's likely to galvanize what's not quite a unified group into a more unified group? 
Yeah, it's a good point. Look, I, I, I'm personally uncomfortable with the term deep state because I do think it suggests there's some monolithic paranoid conspiracy out there that I don't really think exists. I, I agree completely with you that typically bureaucracies and organizations go and do their thing. They have their own parochial interests. They defend their turf uh, in the interagency fights. But I do think that there's a certain enemy of my enemy logic uh, that's playing out uh, here or could play out here. I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about professional members of the bureaucracy, civil servants, foreign service officers, potentially military officers. And my experience, and I, I worked both for the Bush administration and the Obama administration, and you know, I was in an office uh, in Rumsfeld's Pentagon in 2005 and 2006, and there were a lot of career civil servants there who didn't agree with the things Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz and Fife and the rest of them were doing, but they still saluted smartly and moved out on those policies and tried to do the best for the country. Similarly, I came in to run the Middle East office at the Pentagon a couple weeks uh, into the Obama administration. That was back when we actually put political appointees into our departments and agencies shortly after inauguration. And I inherited the office, the Middle East Policy Office, that had been the Office of Special Plans. It had been kind of the focal point for all that had gone wrong with Iraq and, and everything else. And yet, there, the civil servants who worked in that office were willing to you know, take direction from uh, Obama folks. So I think it is possible to uh, corral uh, the bureaucracy and to shift them in a direction that's consistent with what a president ran on and what and the agenda that an administration sets. I just think that this administration is uniquely different. I think they are uniquely disorganized. I think they have uh, declared war on uh, on the bureaucracy, not just uh, the the intelligence community. They've completely marginalized anybody who has professional expertise as as some, uh, somehow corrupted uh, by the establishment. And when you completely ignore uh, the folks who have been doing this in some cases for decades, uh, when you don't include them in the process, when you have lots of mistakes as a consequence, like the like the executive order rollout or the Yemen raid or a whole bunch of other things, you're going to trigger response. That response could come in the form of leaks. Uh, that uh, response could come in the form of civil disobedience. And I would, I would suspect that there are a lot of people across the interagency who agree on one thing right now, and that is they are completely horrified by the combination of dysfunction and malice uh, coming out of the White House. Rosa, did you notice there that when Colin was laying this out, he threw in this kind of snarky thing about not getting offices filled in the government? Just <laughs> I did. I heard away. that. You did. And I was thinking that, you know, within Colin, the you, deep you state. you two are so it. mean to Donald Trump. I am. Yeah, you're, yeah, very, you're picking them. But I think that, Rosa, you're uniquely qualified. <laughs> if there was part of the U.S. government called deep snark. <laughs> you could you could lead that. I know. I've I've often could? thought I could be the the undersecretary <laughs> for it. Um, yeah. Indeed, the, the under the, well, the undersecretary for Snark, and I, and I think I think you he know, once frankly, nominated me for that job, David. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you know the, uh, maybe, but I think this is an administration that really calls for it. Is this sense that you're getting that the IC is is uncomfortable with Trump? Something that you also think may exist within the professional military, despite the fact that, you know, Trump seems to love military brass. I mean, he likes hiring them. He likes traveling with them. He likes hanging out well, with they, them. Well, they have Because they make uniforms. him feel like a president. Yeah, yeah exactly. they look very good in their uniforms, and, and he likes that, and as he should. 
Um, no, I, I think that there is unease really across the board uh, in, in all the departments and agencies for all the reasons that Colin said. I mean, the irony of this actually is that I think that federal bureaucrats, God bless them, whether they're in uniform or not, and there are plenty of uniformed bureaucrats at the Defense Department and elsewhere, on some level, they just they just want someone to tell them what to do, you know, that they're professionals, they want to do their job, whether they ideologically agree with everything the current occupant of the White House says and does or not. They have a very strong sense of their roles as professionals, and they kind of want to be told, okay, fellas and gals, here's what we're doing. Now get to it. And it actually, while there's, you know, every president faces some degree of of bureaucratic frustration, but but usually it's not concerted. There's no conspiracy. And as, as, as Colin said, any given office in the Pentagon or the State Department or anywhere else is also busily fighting with other offices in the Pentagon and the State Department everywhere else. Uh, you know, there, there's absolutely no vast conspiracy. They're not all doing the same thing. They're, they're defending their turf from multiple corners. Um, but they kind of want to do a good job. Uh, and I think it, it is what Trump has done is he's really – he, he had a real opportunity, as every president does, to generate goodwill and cooperation from the vast federal bureaucracy. Uh, instead, he seems to be in the process of accomplishing something that, that really is difficult to accomplish, which is taking a group of people who are not homogeneous, who have differing agendas, differing ideologies, different party affiliations, different backgrounds and experiences, and creating a fairly unified sense of, of panic uh, about just the the sense that the as as Colin put it, it's a mixture of incompetence and malice from the White House. So I I can't even imagine what the conversations going on uh, in in among senior leaders on the Joint Staff and private are like right now. Actually, I can't imagine them. I take that back. I, I doubt that they're terribly complimentary towards Donald Trump. I think one of the biggest issues that I'm hearing the most from. Uh, you know, card carrying deep state members, although I'm, I'm not sure it says DS on their on their cards. Um, <laughs> that's the, that's a security clearance level. <laughs> right. We just spent the past 15 minutes saying that there is no deep state. And yeah, now David's just picking up there. On I'm it. just picking up on it just <laughs> yeah, to be contrary. That happened, again. but yeah. yeah. But I think what I do hear is this is how they're operating under fundamentally no stress. Right. That, you know, right. all the stress so far has either been self-inflicted. You know, what did right. what what did uh, General Flynn tell the vice president or it has been organizational, but they haven't yet had a significant challenge. Colin mentioned, you know, the troubles they had with the Yemen raid, which we should talk about in a bit. And certainly we've had uh, other. But if you think about this, this is pretty minor stuff compared to what will certainly come along at some point. And I, the biggest worry I hear is how does this system operate if they get under even medium stress? Yeah. Well, let's, you know, and I would like to talk about that in a second, but I want to sort of curve back around on the deep state thing, David, and then I'll go to Jacob and Colin. But the deep state, let's just, you know, let's call it the black helicopters of 2017. You know, it doesn't really exist. But having said that, I think something, you know, like a penny has dropped for Trump. And the, and the penny that's dropped is, you know, all that stuff we really don't want people to know, there are actually some people who know it. <laughs> you know, that there's, you know, there's a bunch of people in the IRS who actually have his income taxes, you know, and it's not a small group. There's a whole <laughs> bunch who actually know exactly what his economic relationships are. And there's a bunch of people in the intelligence community who have listened in on lots of conversations by lots of Russians 
some of whom are in the intelligence community, who, you know, um, who are, are kind of irritated right people. now. <laughs> yeah, but well, but you know, but but they're listening. You know, that this all exists there, and as a consequence of realizing this, Trump is now, I think, engaged in this kind of race to discredit them in the same way he's trying to discredit the media that they're talking to so that the, when these stories come out, they're less damaging. And, you know, I'm just, David, in, in talking to the people you talk to in the IC, do you get a sense from them that they feel the same sense of urgency to get the stuff out? You know, I don't know how much of it is in the IC as much as just in the generalized bureaucracy. And I think that they fear a little bit that Trump may be making some inroads, that certainly with his base, where the New York Times, the Washington Post, and dare I even say it, FP, might not be— Don't, the, don't leave Slate out of the, don't oh, leave Slate out J- of the equation here. You know— uh, Jake, I'm sorry. I did not. I did not mean <laughs> it. This was not meant as a. a I, I'd love to see sometime the um, the diagram that shows the overlap between Trump voters and Slate readers. But yeah, no offense taken, David. But you know, it is the worst thing that can happen to you right now is being left off the White House enemies list. That's yeah, right. that, could you, that could haunt you for years to come. Yeah. yeah. Well, Rothkoff's doing everything he can to stay on. Uh, 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 yes, uh, really? So, yeah, I'm, I'm on it. Twenty hours, twenty four hours a day. <laughs> right. Um, but I, you know, I think what they're, I think you're seeing two things happen, and it's actually when you think about what the source of leaking is. One is that because there is such dysfunction right now, just in the absence of appointments and so forth, some of the, I hate to use the word leaks because I don't. It suggests that we just sit here and the stuff comes in. But some of the disclosures— that's how it worked in the New York Times. You just just sit back with your feet up. Grab a cup of coffee, (laughs) mix a few drinks. and Every now and then somebody sends you a classified document. Yeah, yeah. I I realize that that is the popular image. And President Bush once said something to me that made me think that it was his image of it. But that's not really how it works. But I think what is happening here is that in things like the EOs, which are not classified documents, or at least the ones we've seen so far, that they have been uh, provided to us as a way of getting the issues circulated because they weren't being circulated through the real system. And let me give you an example. There was a draft EO, which I don't think has still been issued, that called for um, keeping Guantanamo open. That was no surprise. And for reopening black sites around the world, which are where the CIA did some of its interrogations. Now, let's set aside from the fact that the countries that had the black sites, which included Poland and Romania and Thailand and so forth, they, they haven't exactly been lobbying for us to reopen these things. They were a huge black eye for them. But one of these drafts called for reopening them. Once we published that, General Mattis and others read these. Um, Suddenly in the next leak draft, that was gone. And it was gone because the leak served to actually do what the interagency process should have done. Then there's a second category, which are people preserving data that they think will um, be deleted. So at the EPA, again, not classified data by and large, there are people who've been mirroring the entire EPA site before – information about climate change got deleted. That's a second version of this. And then the third version comes in classified cases 
or at least sensitive cases like the Yemen one or something that my colleagues and I revealed on Monday, which was an aborted plan to intercept an Iranian ship in international waters, where the concern was that all of the issues had not been uh, aired, including the possibility of American casualties. So, so there is, Jacob, it seems to me that the Congress isn't working as a very good check on these guys, but there may be this kind of entrepreneurial check emerging from the bureaucracy where they sort of rise up and they say, well, not so fast. Here's a leak. You know, here's here's an item that they don't want to have released, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they they pull back. We saw that recently with uh, an AP story about an army of 100,000 people being pulled together from the National Guard to round up immigrants. And within an hour, it was discredited by the White House, although I don't know that that means it was actually discredited, as something that was just under discussion. So, you know, maybe as David suggests, this actually works. This this is the new interagency process. So here's the, the great kind of moral drama of this era, you know, and I think it's driving many of these jaw-dropping scoops that Sanger's had in the, in the paper in the last... Of course, the reason they're jaw-dropping is that Sanger had a scoop, right? I mean, that's... <laughs> oh, you know. He sure yes. know how to hurt a guy. And I'm, I've got such a delicate ego, too, David. Yeah, Even exactly. a stopped clock is right twice a day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I will try to say in a non-sycophantic way, but as a Sanger fan, the, the frequency and pace of his scoops is such that that, that bounces off him, right? Because they're, like, they're, they're like fast and furious. But what's going on? All right, everyone who works in a, for government and a bureaucracy has to have asked themselves, what would I do in a situation where orders I got were in conflict with the law? What would I do if my moral obligation and my career, my professional obligation came into conflict because we know that in many countries that's a fact of life and even in our democracy that happens from time to time. Suddenly that question has become real and immediate for people in the military, for people in the intelligence community, for people at the EPA. In every branch of government, this is either happening or right around the corner. And these are times that test men's souls. This is we're seeing what people are made of. And I think, you know, to the great surprise of a lot of people, Congress is showing the Republicans in Congress are showing they're not worth very much that they put, you know, career comes ahead of everything that the amount of independence, genuine independence so far has been absolutely minimal. But in this bureaucracy, this much mocked bureaucracy, there are heroes around every uh, every corner, and there are people who are doing things out of a sense of moral obligation rather than falling into line, even though it puts their careers at risk. And in some cases, you know, these leaks, obviously, these intelligence leaks are, are felonies. I mean, people go to prison for doing these things. They're not doing this cavalierly. They're doing this because they see themselves as democratic safeguards. And it's... It's kind of inspiring. It's terrible what's happening. But I but I really admire these people who are putting themselves on the line. But Colin, they take an oath to protect the Constitution, uphold the Constitution. They don't take an oath to the president, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to distinguish between the classified uh, information and the non-classified uh, information. I mean, the classified, they do take uh, an oath not to release classified information. So I think that's important. And, and But I think the more general point is, look, it's not like Trump's team doesn't leak either. 
In fact, they leak strategically because they understand and have understood all throughout the campaign and continue today that unless it gets out there and especially unless it gets on the shows, he doesn't consider it. And that's because Trump has never run a good process. He's never run it in his campaign. He's not running it at the White House. And he ran a business in which everybody who worked for him was either a family member or a suck-up. He's never run a good process, and he's not an open-minded, creative guy. And so the only way uh, that you get stuff in front of him is to get it out into the public discourse and then confront him with it uh, through the media, which he consumes voraciously. Um, I think the bureaucracy— Well, I understand he he does like short documents with pictures of it. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Well, I did make the recommendation during the transition period that the intelligence community should prepare the presidential daily brief as a series of tweets. But that apparently they never took me up on that. Maybe they're doing that. Did they think the presidential daily tweet. <laughs> Correct. You so know, so an a, example of that would be something <laughs> like fat Kim Jong-un launches ICBM. Apologize! Exclamation point. Uh, it's sad. So sad. Bad. So <laughs> India and Pakistan trade shots yeah. across the line of control. We have to losers. Know, did the- <laughs> Colin? We, 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 I think I think we got to do this. I think we got to do this. So I, I just want to know. I, no, no. You did the members of the deep state? It. Did the members of the deep state think that was as funny as you did? Luke, I do really think that the intelligence community was trying during the transition, in all seriousness, to try to figure out how they could convey information to this guy. He is not a guy who reads. Uh, Everything that's come out about the way in which – look, when I worked for President Obama uh, and Vice President Biden, you know, the call packages that went to them had pages and pages of detailed talking points and a lot of background. uh, And they both read – were voracious uh, consumers. They read the material. They came into the pre-brief ready to discuss it. And then we had 15 minutes standing around not just with the National Security Advisor but with senior directors and directors, sometimes assistant secretaries of state and others to prepare uh, for either an encounter with a foreign leader or a phone call. Now, none of that happens. Uh, Trump requires one page of double-spaced bullet points that aren't complete sentences. They're just memory joggers. A couple of pages of background that nobody thinks that he reads. And he doesn't even stay on the script. Instead, he veers off to talk about crowd size or Hillary Clinton or whatever. The, the interesting thing is, is that the private Trump is the same guy. He's the same lunatic uh, that we see out on display and out on the campaign trail uh, again today. Was, was Reagan that... Dopey about this? Well, remember the famous Weinberger briefing that David Stockman got so upset about it when Weinberger said, well, do you want the scrawny soldier who looks like Woody Allen or do you want the big, beefy G.I. Joe fully equipped with all the new weapons? And Reagan, of course, said, I want the I want the. That one, I want that. You know, but he was, but he was. It was like a bit of a scandal when Stockman revealed that Casper Weinberger had been briefing Reagan with pictures. Is, let's just think about this. You know, interestingly, you have Trump and George W. Bush and Reagan, all of whom were famous for not reading stuff. Is this a platform of the Republican Party that we should be getting down to? You know, half of Americans read fewer than five books a year. Do we call those Republicans? Well, well, you know, you, you assume these things are just a coincidence, but I don't think it is. I mean, you know, dyslexia is usually oversampled in CEOs, right? Because if you're dyslexic, you overdevelop your interpersonal skills and you get very good at dealing with people other ways. So if you are not a reader, either because you have some form of dyslexia or, or whatever, you get good at absorbing information in other ways. I mean, you don't absorb information, but I'm you know, con- and I think, 
Yeah. I just wanted to come back to something that Jacob said earlier, which I think is is worth drawing out. One thing that's, I think, been a really happy surprise for me, since, as you all know, I have a, an apocalyptic imagination. I always assume that civilization is about to come crashing down, is the degree to which both the, the deep state, if we want to call it that, or, or the landscape of federal employees uh, – but also the court system and and also the American people, almost everybody with the exception of the Republicans in Congress, I would say, have actually really stepped up because, I, I you know, there's a famous line, famous at least to us law professor wonks from the learned jurist, learned hand, who I always thought had the best name in history, something along the lines of, uh, you know, Liberty lies in the hearts of men. When it dies there, no law, no constitution, no court can save it. Uh, but when it's there, you don't need the constitution and courts. And that's obviously not an exact quote. But but obviously, on all of this stuff, uh, ultimately, the checks and balances are political. They're, they're not they're – not, no law will prevent Donald Trump from doing something he wants to do if Congress doesn't care, if the American people don't care, if the courts don't care, and the courts are made up of human beings too. And and I think the kind of amazing thing that we've seen in the last month uh, against the odds in many ways because everything in history tells us that people like to go along to get along and people are not very brave, but against the odds we have seen – over and over and over again, we have seen civil servants, we have seen military personnel, we have seen ordinary people going out there on the streets holding signs who've never been at a protest march before in their lives. We've seen judges standing up and saying, hang on a second, you know, that there are some core values that have to do both with American inclusiveness and tolerance, but that also have to do with professionalism and coherency and how we how we function as a government and as a society that we're going to stand up for even at substantial personal risk. And that is pretty amazing and frankly to me sort of surprising. Um, the, the other thing that gives me a little bit of hope that the apocalypse is not going to come as quickly as I thought a couple of weeks ago, uh, I actually think Flynn's ouster is a really good sign because it suggests that the Trump inner cabal there in the White House is not yet entirely lost to the normal forms of pressure that come from the media, that come from professional uh, actors inside the government and so on, that they, that they still – care a little bit despite all the rhetoric uh, and have to respond to actual facts that get into the news. David, do you share a little Rosa Sunshine's optimism there? No. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. It was just a fantasy, but, but I liked it. it uh, but, okay, happy. So, I so, thought it was a really nice fantasy. It made me so happy. Well, well, we no, look, I think, I think one thing you have seen happen in the past week or so is that the antibodies in the system have all been activated. So think about the week in which we're recording this. On day one, Monday, there was a big story in the Washington Post that dealt with who Flynn was talking to when and what the FBI was looking at, and a big story in the New York Times my colleagues and I did about what's happening inside the NSC that was full of a lot of details about the dysfunction. Both of those got read by the president. Both of them got discussed a lot. And by the end of the day, Mr. Flynn was gone for uh, ostensibly because he had misled the uh, vice president. But President Trump had known about that act of, of misleading him for at least 17 days. So I think it was the fact that things were getting out in public, that it looked like the White House NSC was being mismanaged, that the FBI 
investigation details were coming out that forced him out. On Tuesday, they had to withdraw the nomination uh, of his labor secretary, right? On Thursday, it became, or Wednesday night and Thursday, it became clear that his lead candidate to become national security advisor had declined to take the job because he fundamentally couldn't imagine working under this structure in the White House, though there were all kinds of other other uh, answers offered. Uh, and we're only halfway through the day that we're taping this. So I think what you're seeing happen is that the counteraction is taking is beginning to, to kick in, and the president's either going to have to decide he's going to overcome it or adjust to it. What is the White House? You, you, you go visit the, the White House these days. How, how does it feel different from past White Houses to you, David? Other than being a especially finely tuned machine. It is a finely tuned finely machine. Tuned machine. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the military aides, the staffers, they're all where you expect them to be. You walk inside. Ashen, and, shaking. Right. <laughs> but uh, Curled up. Right. Curled up in the fetal, fetal position under their desks. <laughs> yeah, right. But a lot of the offices that you expect to be filled are empty. If you go by Mr. Flynn's office after uh, he left rather hurriedly on Monday night, they've now emptied it out of his books, his photos. There's some cables around. A uh, big standing desk is still there. But fundamentally, it looks like empty office space. If you go up into the National Security Council offices across the street in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, there are a lot of senior directors who have not been appointed yet. There's one who was appointed, couldn't get a security clearance and had to leave. And a lot of people who were appointed by— Actually, uh, wasn't, wasn't there a story yesterday that six people couldn't get their national security clearance and were escorted out? There were, yeah. I, I, yeah, but these were not – those weren't NSC staff. They were basically West Wing staff schedulers and some other things. It's still weird. Don't get me wrong. It's still it's weird. Still weird uh, but it's it's not quite as Quite as big as, as a senior director of the NSC, Correct. which uh, this was the director for Africa. And then there were a lot of people who were appointed by General Flynn who had a past relationship with him at the DIA or in uh, the time he served in the military who were sitting there wondering whether or not – when the next national security advisor comes in, he'll want a clean house, he or she, and and bring in their own people. That kind of question is not unusual in year three, but it's really unusual in week four. Do you get a sense that something different is going on here, Jacob, beyond what David's talking about? Something different. It's all different. It's <laughs> you know, it's it's just it's complete meltdown of chaos. But I sort of wonder, you know, the contrarian me says well, you know, I run a business. I always think it's good to go away for a couple of weeks because people figure out how to do everything without you. Um, isn't it good that the that the rest of the democratic world becomes a little less dependent on the United States? You know, Canada's stepping up. Canada has a real leader. You know, the Joe Europeans Trudeau. have to kind of look at, look at. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not that it's not that the United States is unnecessary, but maybe it's good if. The rest of the world figures out how to do without us because we're this sort of weird in absentia government that can't get its act together even just to do basic things. I mean, fill the jobs, have policies. That's not – the United States isn't really going to have a foreign policy the way it's supposed to for a while. And everyone's just going to have to figure out how to do without it. Xi Jinping Rosa, seems to be and, working on that problem. Yeah, well, I worry more, I worry more about I worry more about the Germans. Look, the, the one the one thing I would I, I would disagree with is that look when you have German officials who are regularly coming out now saying basically that Europe's going to have to look out for itself uh, and that the president of the United States is a threat to European uh, unity. 
Americans have sacrificed blood and treasure and risked nuclear war for almost seven decades to not have Germans say that. So, like, there are big issues at, at risk here if, if there's a huge rift that opens up between us and the rest of the transatlantic uh, community. And, by the way, the person who benefits uh, from that more than any other is Vladimir Putin, whose dual way of undermining the liberal international order is to gut out Western democracies from the inside out and put pressure uh, from the outside in. And I fear that Trump plays, both in, it plays into both of those strategies. So let me ask a question that I've been meaning to ask for a long time. Jacob? Your brother is one of the creators of The Americans. Undoubtedly, at some point, he came up to you and said, look, I have a great idea for a television series. It'll be about these Russian agents <laughs> planted in the United States. You told them it was ridiculous and that it would be completely irrelevant and it was never going to work, right? Well, I said to Joe last week, I've really been enjoying season five of The Americans. He said, what do you mean? It's not out yet. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he no one hates this more than my brother because his whole idea of doing The Americans, if you've seen it, is to look back at this period of history with this opportunity, which he thinks we've got for the first time, to kind of think outside our old ideological framework of the Cold War and to, you know, identify with human beings across across borders. And he really – he. They had a huge stake in the show of it not being current and not being relevant. So he doesn't deny that it is, but the last conversation he wants to have is about how everything that's going on now is straight out of his show, and they're desperate to keep it out of the show. They, 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 the one thing he says is there, there will be no knowing references to Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin in the new season. His show is up to 1983 or 1984 this season. I can't remember, but they do not want to go so beyond Trump's that. Trump's not going to show up with a like disco ball and, and as a kind of a funny reference to what was going to happen. I, I, Donald Trump, however, has not made the same pledge to your brother <laughs> that references to the Americans will not actually turn up in current history. Okay, we're going to wrap up this episode of the ER in a moment. But first, I would like to have a spontaneous two-minute-long debate. And here's how the debate goes. Rosa, you will explain how this is all Obama's fault. <laughs> Colin, you may, you, may, you may rebut Rosa's assertions. Oh, well, it's not all Obama's fault. It's only a little bit. Only some of it is Obama's fault. I miss Obama so much right now. I love him. And I'm so sorry that I ever said anything mean about him because uh, I would give anything to have him back. However, uh, that notwithstanding, <laughs> um, I do think that that one of the errors that President Obama made that we're, we're, we're really seeing play out right now uh, is on a lot of the regulatory rules that were saved until the last minute and are now being undone by the Republican Congress using a provision that we should have, of course, expected them to use. I think I think President Obama got a little overly confident. And, and you know, many of us did. He was obviously not alone. Uh, Hillary Clinton was overly confident. The the New York Times was overly confident that Hillary Clinton was going to win. I remember that little terrible little needle that kept moving so depressingly on Election Day. That wasn't um, perhaps our best that invention. That was not, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> The you problem know, and, wasn't and election day. The problem was the days prior to that. Yeah, that that I think that President Obama, like many other people, fell into the trap of thinking that the basic trajectory of American politics was was arcing towards justice and so forth, and that there was no huge urgency to lock in uh, anything in particular because the next person to come along was going to share the same general values and agenda. And that turned out, of course, to be to be dead wrong. We're now seeing how, how easy it is to undo some of the things that were sort of put into place late and haphazardly. 
I think that's the biggest thing that that I would I would sort of hold him accountable for. I think the other thing which we've talked about more broadly, and this is something that you know I don't think he would have. I, well, I don't know. It's an interesting question. Would he have done differently? I, I do think that on some of the use of force issues, targeted strikes, et cetera, that the arguments that I and others have been making about, hey, look, we've got a system that is overly vulnerable to abuse because of the lack of transparency and the lack of non-executive branch accountability mechanisms. For so long, I think the Obama administration on that, too, has been thinking, well, no worries, because the people in charge are always going to be good, responsible, careful people. Uh, and now, indeed, we're seeing uh, a lot of those policies, I think, look a little bit different when you think when Donald Trump is the guy making the decisions. Colin, you have five seconds to do uh, Look, I, I think Rose is right that when you lean on executive action too much, your gains are fragile and it might be based on assumptions that whoever comes after you, kind of you hand the baton to them and he or she continues to run in the same direction. Uh, I think to give Obama some credit, I think he would have loved to lock a lot of this in uh, if he'd had partners in Congress. The Republicans never wanted to work with him. You saw what what they did uh, throughout his administration. So he turned to executive action because that was the only way you could get uh, some things done. I will also say I do think there are some achievements in the Obama administration that will be more difficult for Trump to unwind than others because they've unleashed some, some of their own momentum. A good example is on climate change where a lot of the reductions in carbon emissions, for example, are locked in as a consequence of some technological developments that were unleashed by the stimulus uh, package and some other uh, and some other things uh, that are that are going to continue whatever whether Trump disbands the EPA uh, or not, you also have states and cities and others that are going to start regulating and doing those things and taking over for the void that the federal government is leaving. So I do think that there is some resiliency and 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 some momentum built into some of the things that he's, that he's done. Uh, but it does speak to the point that if you act through uh, executive action, it can be reversed through executive action. Excellent. Great response. Great podcast. I'm stimulated. I'm excited. I'm optimistic, thanks to Rosa. I'm depressed, thanks to David. I'm bipolar, uh, which is the perfect way to approach living in Trump's America. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, David. And everybody, come back in a couple of days when we have part two of this exciting series on, on the ER this week. Thanks, everybody. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.